When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Nicole Holliday, a linguistics professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Ben Zimmer, language columnist for The Wall Street Journal. And this is Spectacular Vernacular, a podcast where we not only explore language, we also play with it. This week, we'll be joined by two lexicographers, Peter Sokolowski of Merriam-Webster and Fiona McPherson of the Oxford English Dictionary, who will tell us about their choices for Word of the Year. And later on, we'll be joined by a spectacular vernacular listener from New Zealand for a very international wordplay quiz. We have guests from the U.S., the U.K., and New Zealand this week. We're really spanning the globe. Yes, and it's always great to chat with our friends from the dictionary world. Ben, I know you've been involved in both linguistics and lexicography, but those two fields don't actually intersect as much as people might think. Yeah, it's true. You know, I worked for a while as a lexicographer for Oxford University Press. I was editor for U.S. Dictionaries. But most people who work on the major dictionary programs, they don't necessarily have backgrounds in linguistics. Uh, Lexicographers often come out of the humanities, where they might be studying language from a more literary or historical angle. Yeah, before I knew you could be the kind of linguist I am, I thought maybe I wanted to be a lexicographer, and then I realized that was reading a lot of books. But there is one prominent linguist who dabbled in lexicography, uh, someone who passed away recently. Yeah, that's right. Lila Gleitman who was a pioneer in linguistics and cognitive science, died this past August at the age of 91. And she taught for many years at the University of Pennsylvania, where you teach now, Nicole. And in her later years, I got to know her, and I got to talk to her about one of her proudest achievements. As she liked to put it, quote, I'm the gal who put fuck in the dictionary. Wow, we're proud of her at Penn, but I didn't know about that piece, uh, and that's quite a claim to fame. Yeah, it sure is. When the New York Times published their obituary of Lila Gleitman, they had to dance around this a bit, as you might imagine. So this is the way the Times put it. You know, when she entered Penn as a young graduate student in linguistics in the late 1950s, she, quote, took a job at the Eastern Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute, where part of her work involved writing entries related to psychology for the next edition of Webster's Dictionary, including one for a crude term referring to sexual intercourse, which had never before appeared in the book. Yeah, that euphemism doesn't quite have the same ring to it. (laughs) No, it doesn't. But let's hear from Lila Gleitman directly in her own words. Here's a clip of her talking at the Association for Psychological Science conference in 2017, where she was interviewed about her whole career by Susan Golden Meadow. Here she's talking about the grad student job she got back in the 50s, working for the psychiatrist Harold Rashkis. He had gotten the contract to write the psychological entries for the next edition of Webster's Dictionary. And that was quite interesting. Uh, So he decided that I should do it. Okay. Uh, And it's wonderful. You get 100 cards. I mean, I think they have troops of monkeys that type the uh, 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 100 cards on which your mystery word has 
occurred somewhere. So you get a little paragraph of text, uh, and you get about a hundred of them. Uh, and um, you're supposed to riffle through those and figure out a, a paraphrase, pre presumably, that will um, um, be the dictionary entry uh, for that word. And a lot of funny things happened there of which there was another person working as a secretary there, a woman. I love this story. She came in, she said, what are you doing with those cards all the time? And I can imagine how proud I was. I said, I am writing the definitions for Webster's Dictionary. And she said, how do you do that? So I thought about it for a second. I said, well, I make them up. <laughs> she said, you? And then she said, I always told this to my undergraduates. You make them up, I will never look up a word in the dictionary again. <laughs> they were so wonderful, because people think the dictionary came from God. You know, it wasn't God. It's an unemployed first-year linguistics student somewhere. All right, That's so very cool. But what about the F word? Okay, here's Lila again. All right, so tell us about that famous word that you got into the dictionary. Oh, yeah. So, yes. So this was also wonderful because, believe it or not, among the psychological words was the word fuck. <laughs> and actually, it was quite interesting. We won't talk about that, but those of you who have thought about symmetrical predicates <laughs> uh, uh, can realize that fuck is quite an interesting word, like marry or equal or so forth behaves in very interesting ways. Uh, so that was my first approach to that. But, but the interesting thing is the upshot forever. I have taken it as my chief uh, accomplishment in life that I'm the gal who put the word fuck in the dictionary. So was she really the gal who put fuck in the dictionary? Well, uh, here's the funny thing. Uh, Lila, as you can tell, loved telling this story. But back in 2017, after she gave that talk, I had to break some news to her. So way back in 1961, when the third edition of Webster's New International Unabridged came out, they decided to remove the word fuck from the dictionary at the last minute. But because she didn't continue doing dictionary work, she didn't actually know about this part of the story. So she did all this work on the entry for fuck, and it didn't actually get used in the dictionary? Well, not right away, no. So the editors at Webster's Third had every intention of including an entry for fuck, and it would have been the first time an American dictionary had dared to do that. So they wanted to get it right, so that's why they consulted with this psychiatrist, Harold Rashkis. But uh, Lila Gleitman told me that Rashkis thought the definition of fuck should just be a transitive verb, meaning to have sexual intercourse with, and he thought it should only have a male subject and a female object, as in John fucked Mary. That's pretty limited, and I'm not sure it would hold up over time. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's exactly what a young Lila Gleitman thought. Uh, she thought that was a pretty limited way of looking at that word, and she argued it needed to be broken into at least two main senses. You have a transitive use, and she said that should be subject and object of any gender, as well as an intransitive use without an object, 
where the participants are the subjects. So John and Mary fucked, for instance. And actually, her argument won out, and entries were drafted for both uses of the verb, along with an entry for fuck as a noun and the verbal phrase fuck up. So what eventually happened to those entries? Well, when the dictionary was in the galley stages, the president of Merriam-Webster intervened. He was afraid those entries would damage the reputation of the company, so he ordered that they should be removed. So, the unabridged dictionary of 1961 didn't include the word fuck, and it would take until 1973, actually, when the eighth edition of Webster's Collegiate came out, for the word to finally be reinstated by Merriam-Webster about 15 years after Lila Gleitman worked on defining it. Well, it's good to know her work finally paid off, even if it took a while for dictionaries to stop being so prudish. Yeah, well, Lila was delighted to hear the full story, and it was such a pleasure sharing the details with her and getting to hear her reminisce about her role in this significant moment in the history of lexicography. After the break, we'll continue the lexicographical theme when we talk about the keywords of the past year with Peter Sokolowski of Merriam-Webster and Fiona McPherson of the Oxford English Dictionary. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back to Spectacular Vernacular. With 2021 behind us, it's time to take stock of how our lexicon changed over the past year. Our guests today represent two of the foremost dictionary publishers in the English-speaking world. Peter Sokolowski is editor-at-large at Merriam-Webster, and Fiona McPherson is senior editor at the Oxford English Dictionary. Welcome to the show, Peter and Fiona. Hello, thank you. Yes, it's a treat to hear your voice, Fiona, for the first time. <laughs> and you. <laughs> And uh, a treat to see old friends, uh, Ben and Nicole. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have both of you on. So Nicole and I are both involved with the American Dialect Society's selection of Word of the Year, which will be happening as part of the Society's annual meeting later this week. Uh, we're meeting virtually this year, so we'll be making our selection over Zoom on January 7th. And in the show notes, we'll include a link to the live stream for people who would like to take part in the vote. And, you know, the ADS has been picking a word of the year, or WODI, as we call it, uh, since 1990. But dictionary publishers have gotten into the act, and they make their own WODI selections. So, for 2021, uh, Merriam-Webster and Oxford Languages have converged on similar choices. Merriam-Webster went with vaccine, and Oxford chose the shortened form of the word vax, V-A-X. So, Peter, let's start with you. Why don't you start off and tell us how Merriam-Webster decided on vaccine as their word of the year? Right. Well, it's less a decision than a, a reportage, I would say. Uh, and what I mean by that is that once we were able to, with the dictionary data, determine which words are being looked up in a certain volume at a certain time, we played with that at first and noticed that, uh, and as Ben, as you know very well, we could sometimes follow news events, um, which could be, you know, national tragedies or the Super Bowl or the Oscars um, or 9-11. And we could notice that people look up a given word at a given time, driven by 
the news of the day. And when we get to the macro perspective, we can stand back and look at a whole year's worth of data and see which words are most looked up in the past year. Now, there's a trap here, the kind of an obvious trap once I say it, which is that the dictionary is there to measure the language. It's not there to measure the news. And therefore, there are words looked up in huge volumes every single day, regardless of the news. And that means that we have to do a little bit of a calculus, which is to say that we try to weed out what we call evergreen words, a word that is going to be looked up regardless of the news, because we want a a word that tells us something about the past 12 months and not just about curiosity about the English language, which is a great story, but a different story. And so we do then look at year over year growth, the, the difference in one year versus the previous year and the curiosity of a given word. And in the case of vaccine, as with pandemic, these were very kind of easy choices. These were terms that were... A pandemic being your choice for the uh, word of the year last year for 2020, correct? Yes, exactly. I mean, and it may sound obvious, but the fact is there was a real lexical reason. There was an urgent need to understand what was going on with this you know, emergency that happened to all of us. And I think the word vaccine is a fascinating sort of sequel, uh, if you will. In other words, we can tell a lot about the year 2020 with simply that one word, pandemic, and then the word vaccine, uh, which became a kind of double story, actually. There's the medical story. And then sort of later in the year, uh, and as we continue to this day, there's the sort of policy story, the, the, you know, should we have mandates? When can children be vaccinated? There's so many questions about the policy of this medicine that really, to me, I see two different parallel related, but very distinct stories. Yeah. And Fiona, the folks at Oxford were carefully monitoring the language of vaccination as well this past year, but rather than vaccine or vaccinate, you chose a snappier version of both words, vax, which can be spelled with one X or two. Uh, What was the thinking behind that choice? Yeah, I mean, we did go for something a little bit snappier and much of the process that we follow just echoes exactly what Peter said. You've got to weed out, you know, the words which people are going to be looking up, which is really interesting, but that's not what you're looking for for a word of the year. needs to be something that's kind of summing up what's happened. And with Vax, what was really interesting for us is it was pretty rarely used until the last 12 months. Vaccine and vaccinate and all of those words, yeah, they're relatively common, especially seasonally. But vax was pretty rare until this last year. And then we saw it something like 72 times more in its usage in our corpus. So that really obviously made it stand out for us. And then I think the reason we went with that is, yep, it's it's short, it's snappy, a little bit more colloquial. And as we all love a productive word in English, you know, you can put it with other words. So you're getting things like vaxed, double vaxed, all of that kind of thing. And obviously as well, it's much beloved of headline writers and, and, and media commentators because... Yeah, I loved, I loved the uh, hot vax summer <laughs> that we had. <laughs> exactly so. And one other thing I think, and you touched upon it, Peter, that's really been interesting about the whole, the whole vaccination story and the whole vax story is that you can even trace how it's being used through the year. So at the start of the year, it was 
literally telling us about the fact that these things were in existence. And then that moved on to the rollout. And then that moved on to, as you say, the mandate idea. So you could even see the progression and the journey that the word's going through itself, even just in the one year. So it was kind of always obvious, I think, that we were going to pick something in this particular area. And it shows that that is the sort of the thing that's captured the imagination, given that, you know, you guys have chosen vaccine and we've chosen vax essentially the same word, just different form. So, Peter, I know that Merriam-Webster made some changes to the definition of vaccine this past year to reflect changes in usage in the COVID era. So tell us, how did the definition get revised? Yes, indeed. I mean, and I'm sure Fiona can agree that the real story about lexicography is one word for me, and that word is revision. Mm-hmm. I think there's a paradox about dictionaries. We think of them as big permanent repositories of knowledge, and they are, but they are also constantly changing records of a a moving target. And uh, in the case of vaccine, like so many basic English words, it had been defined, I don't know, 10 or 20 years ago and had not been revised in recent years. And in particular, science has moved on because we now have a different kind of vaccine. The idea that messenger RNA is now the the function of a vaccine uh, was not at all in our former definition. And we realized that, again, with the urgency of this pandemic and the specificity of this uh, new vaccine technology, if you will, we needed to update our definition to include what is now online at 1B, a preparation of genetic material, such as a strand of synthesized messenger RNA that is used by the cells of the body to produce an antigenic substance, such as a fragment of virus spike protein. Now, when we did this, as always, you know, if we're looking this carefully at a definition, we adjust and revise the rest of the definition. And one other way we revise this definition is we change the word immunity to the body's immune response. And we have an entry at immune response that explains what that is, just as we have an entry at messenger RNA that explains what that is. And those entries are linked from vaccine. So we just made a very easy choice, which is that a stipulative scientific definition uh, where the science has changed requires fast action. And so we changed that definition. Yeah. And even if Merriam-Webster didn't choose vax as word of the year, the online dictionary has some related words like anti-vax and anti-vaxxer. There was a bit of controversy over Merriam-Webster's revision of the definition of anti-vaxxer this past year. What was that all about? Right. Uh, and that, you know, this is one of those things that is surprising. It could be dismaying from one point of view. From another point of view, it proves that dictionaries are still relevant in the national conversation. The fact that people get so upset about definitions, you know, it does show that there's a power in words and that power is respected. One of the interesting things about this entry for anti-vaxxer is that the change in the definition to anti-vaxxer was the replacement of the word laws. It said laws mandating vaccination, a person who opposes the use of vaccine or laws mandating vaccination. And now we change it to regulations. Uh, So a person who opposes the use of vaccines or regulations mandating vaccination. And again, this revision, very simple, because the evidence we saw was that lots of 
vaccine mandates come from places like restaurants and concert venues and bars and nightclubs and school districts and counties and cities and, and states, but not all of those are laws. And the word regulation incorporates the idea of a law, but the, the word law struck us as being too limiting and not accurate, and therefore we changed the definition. So Fiona, when Oxford announced the news about its word of the year, it was part of a 33-page report on the language of vaccines. And because Oxford Languages has specialist consultants on languages around the world, you were able to present a more global picture, moving beyond English to look at how vaccines are being talked about in other languages like Mandarin Chinese and Hindi and Spanish and Arabic. So could you tell us a bit about what you found out about these different international outlooks on the language of vaccines? Yeah, that's the great thing that we could also, as you say, use the language experts in, in those particular languages who would be able to help us with that and to, to see if there's a story to tell there. And that's something that actually, although we've produced this stuff for the, the Word of the Year report, we're hoping to expand on that and do some more work next year. Um, one of the things that really st uh, stood out for me was um, the Bangla um, in the Bangla word for vaccine, they, ha they have a word which um, my pronunciation may not be brilliant, so please excuse me, is um, tika. And that word is used in the rural context and usually by maybe older speakers of the language. And it's very, it's a traditional word. And it, it was also used for existing vaccines before, you know, before 2020 and, and COVID came along. But what they've actually done is borrowed the English word. And that loan word is being used to basically almost exclusively refer to the COVID-19 vaccine, mostly probably on um, social media and in the sort of digital world. But I found that really fascinating that, you know, there was a word that they could have used in their own language, but they decided, no, we're going to actually borrow this. And, and it became a real, you know, specific thing. It's not that surprising that this word has got so much resonance everywhere in the world. It's not just in English. And that's not that surprising because because, you know, this is something which I think is, has obviously affected everybody in the world. So it's unsurprising that there's something interesting to say in, in languages other than just in English. But I know that this is something that we're definitely looking next year to expanding upon and, and probably doing a little bit, a, sort of a deeper dive into all of the, into some of these different languages. I mean, obviously it's not all, we, we chose a, a relatively small number to, to do some more um, research on. Just when you think you've kind of, you know, covered all of the bases and thought, yeah, there's nothing much more interesting to say. And then suddenly you can look elsewhere and there's even more to say about it. Peter and Fiona, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you about you know, the words of the past year uh, and get your perspectives on that. Thank you. It's been good fun. Yes, indeed. My treat. Thank you, both of you. And nice to meet you, Fiona. And to meet you. Thanks so much. After the break, it's time for some wordplay. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back. Now it's the time in the show where we play with language. For our wordplay quiz this week, we're very pleased to be joined by Jennifer Meach from Wellington, New Zealand, who correctly answered one of our previous wordplay challenges. Welcome to the show, Jen. Hi. 
Hey, we love having an international audience, so we're so glad that we could find a time to talk that's not in the middle of the night for you or for us. <laughs> so am I. Tell us a little bit about what life is like over there in Wellington. It's the capital of New Zealand, and it's a beautiful city that's on a beautiful harbour. Uh, we've been very, very lucky with COVID. We haven't had any cases in Wellington for a very long time. I run a daycare in my home. And yeah, it's a great place to live. Great. Well, on Spectacular Vernacular, as I'm sure you know, we're all about celebrating linguistic diversity. And that includes the diversity of English dialects around the world. So including New Zealand English. You know, when Americans hear a New Zealander speak, they sometimes assume the speaker is Australian. But the Kiwis have some some features that distinguish them from the Aussies, right? That's right. Yeah, definitely. For me, since I work on phonetics, I'm particularly interested in a phenomenon in New Zealand English known as a chain shift, where the sounds of the short vowels have shifted. Basically, it means that to foreign ears, the vowel in the word bat, B-A-T, ends up sounding like the vowel in bet, B-E-T, and then bet sounds like bit, B-I-T, and then bit sounds like butt, B-U-T. Oh my god. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think I need to get a new accent. No, yours are fine. Maybe ours are just, you know, in reverse. <laughs> All accents are good, absolutely. But, you know, here in the, in the U.S., we actually got exposed to the sounds of the New Zealand dialect a bit on a great comedy show called Flight of the Concords. So on that show, they got some laughs out of American confusion over those Kiwi vowels. They got some laughs out of how the, the bet vowel, B-E-T, as pronounced by New Zealanders, sounds like bit to American ears. So the show features the musical duo of Jemaine Clement and Brett McKenzie, or should I say Brit, Brit McKenzie? <laughs> and here's Brett or Brit talking to an American woman. What's your name again? Brit. Brit? Brit. Brit? Brit? Brit, like, like Brittany? Uh, no, um, B-R-E-T. Oh, Brett. Yeah. It just sounds like Brit. I like your English accent. New Zealand. Oh, from New Zealand. Yeah. And there's another great scene that, you know, I got to play this clip too. The band manager, Murray, is trying to explain to, to Dave, an American friend, the dangers of getting mugged in New York. You just don't know. You hear a lot of terrible things happening. You may be dead. You may be dead what? You may be dead. Yeah, I know, but what did he maybe do? He may be dead. Yeah, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. What did he maybe do? No, he may be dead. So our wordplay quiz is going to play with this pronunciation misunderstanding. We'll be looking for phrases that have so-called short E vowel sounds, but when pronounced in the New Zealand style, they have the so-called short E. I sounds like we heard with Brett and Brit or dead and did. To keep it simple, um, all you're going to need to do is change one letter. So you're going to be changing an E to an I. You'll get a new phrase by doing that. So let's start. For the first one, we're looking for a phrase that refers to an orthographic competition. But if an American heard a New Zealander say it, it might sound like an accident-prone insect. Any ideas? Spelling bee. Nicely done. Right. Okay. So a spelling bee, S-P-E-L-L-I-N-G, that might sound more like the way you say it, spilling bee, which to our ears might sound like a bee that 
makes lots of spills. So there you go. (laughs) (laughs) So next, we're looking for a term used for a winning move in chess. If an American heard a New Zealander say it, it might sound like a companion for a baby bird on a farm. I don't really know anything about chess. Winning move. Oh. Okay, I think I have an idea. So what could it be? Checkmate. That's right. So checkmate in chess or chickmate, the friend of a baby bird, uh, if we were on a farm. <laughs> well done. Okay. Uh, next up, we're looking for the title of a 1989 movie starring Daniel Day-Lewis that earned him his first Academy Award. If an American heard a New Zealander say the title, it might sound like it's about a platform shoe. Oh, my God. I can't think of any Daniel Day-Lewis films. Yeah, you got to go back a ways for this one. 1989. Oh, a platform show. I'd like to say I wasn't old enough, but I am. So if you uh, went to look taller in your shoes, what would you put in them? Usually men. Oh, lift, lift. My left foot. There you go. The movie My Left Foot, or if you change that sound to make it sound like a New Zealander, My Lift Foot. So finally, we're looking for the title of a classic novel by Nathaniel Hawthorne. If an American heard a New Zealander say the title, it might sound like it's about trash that's colored red. Well, the trash or garbage that you might find at the side of the road, I'm not sure what they would call that in New Zealand. Is the... Oh, litter. The red litter. Okay, not red, but a diff- different word there. The... the scarlet. You got it. Scarlet litter. Scarlet letter becoming scarlet litter. There you go. Now we have a challenge for all of our listeners. We're looking for a word that refers to indicators or predictors of future trends. And if an American heard a New Zealander say that word, it might sound like the name of a popular singer heard here. Lean on me when you're not strong And I'll be your friend I'll help you carry on For it won't be long till I'm gone In this case, you have to change a short E to a short I, not once, but twice. Think you've got it? Send your answer to us at spectacularatslate.com with quiz in the subject line of your email. Please include the word and the name you get when the short E's are changed to short I's. From the correct entries, we'll randomly select a winner who will receive a Slate Plus membership for a year, or if you're already a Slate Plus member, you'll get a one-year extension on your subscription. And we may bring you on the show to face a new wordplay challenge. Once again, that's spectacular at slate.com with quiz in the subject line. And please respond by midnight Eastern time on January 12th. And we're very pleased to announce the winner of the contest from our December 21st episode. Peter Gordon of Great Neck, New York, figured out the last two words in the headline, Tiger Woods set for special return to golf action. And if you take the G off the beginning of golf action, you get olfaction, meaning the sense of smell. Congratulations, Peter. Thanks to Jen Meach for joining us. 
that was really good to talk to you guys. So thank you so much. That's it for this week. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. And please consider subscribing to Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like full access to all articles on Slate.com, zero ads on any Slate podcast, and bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and One Year. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash Spectacular Plus. Thanks again to Peter Sokolowski and Fiona McPherson for being our guests this week. Spectacular Vernacular is produced by Jasmine Ellis, Asha Saluja is managing producer, and Gabriel Roth is editorial director for Slate Podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with more Spectacular Vernacular. Thanks for listening. 